0: What if the South had won the American Civil War? It's a question that often gets raised in alternate history. In fact, it's probably one of the most common counterfactual questions that you will see novels, TV shows, and other media about. Probably the only question that's more common is the question of what would have happened if Hitler had won World War II. It's a question that often in the answer Reflects more about the person asking the question than it does about the circumstances as we evaluate the question of confederate victory in the civil war What you find is that most people essentially read their current understandings of politics or their understandings of An ideologies concerning the American Civil War Forward into the scenario that results But what would an independent confederacy have actually looked like? The answer as it turns out from an analysis of the ideology that motivated many confederates, the ideology that would have essentially been required for any sort of confederate society to succeed, and similarly situated societies throughout history, is not a particularly pretty one. But it's probably different than what most people would tend to expect. In this second Civil War counterfactual series, We'll analyze exactly what it would have looked like if the Confederates had won the Civil War and become independent of the United States. I'm Dr. Nolte and this is Blind Politics. And hello, podcast listeners, and welcome once again to a thought provoking episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those either of Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast provider. And you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics. So I'm recording this podcast on July 1st. It's probably not going to be out until next week, but as I'm recording it, we have just experienced the anniversary on July 1st of the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. And I would argue that probably this battle, the Battles of Gettysburg, which happened on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and the Battle of Vicksburg, which was a siege that ended on July 4th of 1863, pretty much mark the end of any realistic Confederate victory scenario. A scenario that involves, at a minimum, you know, the Confederacy coming as an independent power, really, in the long term. You know, in 1864, there are some people that hope that if Lee can sort of survive, and if the armies in the Confederacy can survive, maybe war fatigue will lead to the election of George McClellan. But the reality is that McClellan would not have been inaugurated until March and Lincoln almost certainly would have given it one last try to finish the war. And my suspicion is, given how close the Confederacy was to cracking at that point, given just how exhausted they they become in the campaigns of 1864. You know, it's only a matter of time before Sherman takes Atlanta, before Grant breaks through at at Petersburg and and eventually takes Richmond. And so I don't really see a possibility of a Confederate victory in 1864. So we are we are actually as I'm recording this. The anniversary, the Civil War anniversary that we're looking at, is the first day of the battle that pretty much guaranteed the Confederacy was going to lose the war. After Gettysburg, it's all downhill. It's all sort of defensive war in the East. And the Union was already pretty much winning the war in the West. And and nothing in 1864 changes that. If anything, 1864 is a very bad year for the Confederacy in, in the West because the Western theater moves from Tennessee into Georgia. But we're going to look today at a scenario that has often been popular in counterfactual history and it it sort of is a scenario that that has i would say generated the most alternate history novels of any scenario at least from american authors of alternate history the in the world you'd have to say it's probably hitler victorious scenario which i think is is entirely implausible but that's a, a whole different question it has even spawned or at least was in the possible process of spawning an idea and and I would say as we'll get into in a few minutes a really bad idea for a TV show on the subject it was going to be made by the creators of Game of Thrones called Confederate and the idea was what if the Confederacy had won the Civil War and slavery still existed in the Confederate states yeah we'll, we'll we'll talk about that in a few minutes but I don't really think the show writers had any idea what they were doing and everything about it sounded like an awful idea so I I will kind of give you guys my idea of what that would look like Uh, a modern confederacy obviously that's the point of this podcast but let's just say it looks it looks considerably different from the direction i think they were going to go with it anyway the point being this is something that people have talked about a lot but you always have to keep in mind that when you're looking at this scenario of an independent confederacy that actually for the confederates to win the civil war really they have to kind of draw an inside straight By the time, and we discussed this in our first counterfactual, by the time we get to 1860, 1861, the disparity in terms of economic output, economic system, the number of men that can be put under arms, and the the sheer production capacity is vast. It's enormous. The advantage the Confederates have is that a substantial percentage of the U.S. officer corps going into the war comes from the South. And so you've got a highly trained cadre of people who can who can train and, and implement strategies many of whom have been trained by the by and, and have fought for the country that they're now fighting against the other problem that the union has and sort of managed that the that the confederacy has is that the union is not clear on what its war aims are at the beginning of the war you know obviously there's the idea of sort of preserving the union but there's a really sharp divide about how far they're actually willing to go about, is this just a matter of ending secession? Or are we going to stamp out the root causes of this, which which are slavery? And everybody at the time on the Union side understands that slavery is the root cause, and everybody on the Confederate side understands that slavery is the root cause. The idea that that's not what, what what's being fought about here comes about later. It comes about in sort of the later historiography of the Confederacy. A historiography, I would say, that has obscured more than it has revealed. So, what are we looking at here if there's a Confederate victory in the war? And I don't really want to get into the scenario of how that happens. There are a couple of ways that it could have happened, but the most likely is a successful attack by Robert E. Lee's army of Virginia into the north, an attack that sort of defeats the army of Potomac or, or you know, destroys it in some way and is able to do significant damage to a northern state. This would probably have been sufficient that you would get the other the other thing that you absolutely have to have in this scenario is recognition by international power, particularly by the British, because the British are capable of breaking the American blockade. So in that scenario, what do we in fact have? What you have is an independent confederacy that is dependent on Britain because it, it, it can't win independence on its own. The confederates just don't have enough of a navy to block the, break the blockade unless you break the blockade, there's no way that you win the war, right? So the strategy for the Confederacy is always win a victory that's big enough to get somebody like the British to throw in on our side. Essentially, it's an attempt to, re- to recreate what the American revolutionaries did at Saratoga. Saratoga is a victory where a British army is utterly defeated by the armies of the, the Continental Army and associated militia units, as a result of which France sees this is a going concern, this is a real thing, we can throw in on the side of, the, of the, the people fighting for their independence. Now, I don't necessarily think Britain re- British recognition of the Confederacy in and of itself is sufficient to guarantee the Confederates' victory. First of all, the first thing that British recognition of the Confederacy will do is it will fix the manpower problem that the Union was starting to have in 1862-1863. One of the groups that is the most reluctant to fight in in the American Civil War on the north. On the, on the side of the north is the Irish. Draft riots in New York and Boston are because many Irishmen don't want to be cons- conscripted into a war that they don't see as really their own. They are already associated with the Democratic Party and they see this as more of a Republican war. The minute Britain comes into the war on the side of the Confederacy, that dynamic is going to completely change. The second fact is that while Britain is absolutely capable of breaking the blockade of the United States on the oceans. There's no way that Britain can beat the United States if it comes to war in Canada as well. The Canadian militia, as I recall, had something like 7,000 men under arms. The British garrison in Canada is in no way, shape, or form prepared to actually fight an American attack. And the lacking ability that you see in many of the armies, uh, army commanders in, in the Union is not going to change the fact that you're going to have a blooded, experienced army drawn from these troops that's capable of invading Canada, and that is a huge potential problem for Britain. And I've seen some historians argue, well, Britain could sort of capture California, and that would, you know, help offset the losses there. I'm a little bit skeptical of that. I'm very uncertain whether Britain wants to widen the war that much, because the problem is once you start bringing things into the Pacific... Then there's the possibility that other countries thrown with the United States, you know, the Russians would be very, very happy to poke the British in the eye. Tsar Alexander was very interested in what Lincoln was doing because Tsar Alexander, of course, had also abolished serfdom. So he thought that he and Lincoln had something in common and he'd actually had at one point made an offer of assistance to the Americans in this war. And so, you know, the British and the Russians just fought the Crimean War. I could very much see the Russians deciding, hey, let's, uh, let's take this as an opportunity to poke the British good and hard in the eye. And so, you know, there, there are all kinds of permutations of that. But what we're going to hypothesize here is that there is no war that continues after. That there's a, a smashing defeat of the Union in 1862, somewhere in the north. This leads to British recognition, and Congress essentially forces Lincoln to bow to the inevitable. The Republicans are smashed in the midterms. There's a new Democratic Congress that comes in, and Lincoln is forced to sue for peace. I want to look at, two aspects of this. Number one, the impact on the United States. And number two, the impact on the Confederacy. So first question, what's the impact on the United States? Obviously, it's going to be tremendous. And the main impact that I would see is that both Republican and Democratic parties are going to cease to exist. Republicans because they lost the war. Democrats because being the party. That was advocating for not going to war in the first place and you know getting elected because you feel like the Republicans mismanagement and see I told mismanaged it and see I told you so, is not actually a winning strategy in the long term. So I think the Democratic Party is going to cease to exist in, in the United States because they're still associated with the people that broke away. They're still going to be associated with the South. The Democratic Party, as it was forged by Andrew Jackson, is inexplicably tied to the South. And those people are gone. So what are the new parties that emerge? I'm gonna hypothetically just call them the National Party for a National Union. This is sort of a remnant of the pro-business Republicans and sort of some of the more moderate Democrats that emerge. And, you know, that their party platform is basically gonna be, you know, let's forget about it, let's pretend it never happened, let's make money, let's trade with them if we need to. But then you're gonna have another party. And this is I think. Something that would inevitably happen if you had a situation like this is the, the um, whenever somebody loses a war, this kind of war, there's the stabbed in the back myth. This never really happened to the British in the American Revolution because a lot of, of people in Britain sympathized with the American Revolution, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, because the people who stabbed them in the back, quote-unquote, were the French, and that was not something that was in any way, shape, or form unexpected by the British. So, you know, there's no bitterness about it. It's just as far as they're concerned, the French being the French. This is different because now you have a situation where Britain essentially has intervened and has broken apart the United States. And so this other party I'm going to call the Radical Party. It's going to be a fusion of the abolitionists, the emerging progressive and populist party, and a, a group that sees the war as a plot by aristocrats, the aristocrats of the, the slaving planter class in the Confederacy and the aristocrats that run the government in Britain to undermine American democracy and to undermine American freedom. And So this radical party is going to combine populism at home with a sort of aggressive stance abroad, a particularly aggressive anti-British stance abroad. The things that both of these parties will be able to agree on, number one, massive expansion, expansion of the U.S. Navy. So the U.S. is going to start to see Britain as a peer competitor because they recognize that this independence of the Confederacy is entirely dependent on Britain. And as a result of that, there's going to be a massive expansion in this scenario of the U.S. Navy so that they will have military dominance over Britain as a result number two i think both parties are going to be able to agree on the army still has to stay strong you now have hostile countries on both sides you have canada which is british and britain is clearly hostile you also have the confederacy to the south and the third thing that i think both parties are going to be able to agree on is that the corollary to the monroe doctrine is that the confederacy is not allowed to spread antebellum so pre-war u.s foreign policy as dominated by southern Democrats was absolutely committed to the idea of constant expansion of territory, and particularly expansion of territory to the South and to the West, because they want, the, the Confederacy, that is, or the, the slave states want, to constantly expand the territory of the United States that's going to be under slavery. There's going to be a bipartisan consensus that the Confederacy is not allowed to get bigger. And so the United States is going to be committed to the territorial integrity of Mexico. It's going to be committed to making sure that if there's any canal built in the Western hemisphere, it's built by the Americans and the Confederates can have access to it if they're nice to us. And so there's going to be an absolute opposition to any expansion of the Confederacy because even the the National Party, which in this scenario is the party that is more open to trade with and to sort of normal relations with the Confederacy, is not going to want to see them as a potential rival for the United States in the Western Hemisphere. You know, they're independent. We lost the war. We get it. But we're still going to be the big dog. And there's no way that we're going to let Little Brother Confederate start expanding southward. Is going to be sort of the attitude. So that's going to be a pretty consistent pattern, pretty consistent foreign policy. I do think that you're going to see a, there's no special relationship in this scenario between the United States and Great Britain. The British Empire and the United States are rival powers. Do I think the United States goes so far as to ally with the Germans against the British? Probably not. But if you get some sort of Anglo German tension, I also don't think the United States is in anyway interested in siding with the British against the Germans. Watching the British get pounded by the Germans is going to be immensely satisfying for a lot of Americans, particularly Americans attracted to the radical party. And you could see that as sort of Eastern interests and mercantile interests start saying we need a a little bit more positive relationship with the, the British, you'll see Irish and Germans drifting into the camp of the radical party. And so for the national party, it's, it's actually going to be, I would say, a little bit difficult for them to win elections simply because you're going to see so many different constituencies that that will be inclined to vote radical. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's its necessarily the same kind of party system that we have. I think it's, it's, there's one party that's going to be clearly stronger in terms of electoral strength, but not necessarily in terms of influence on policy, right? So you're going to have one party that's much more elite and one party that's much more populist. So it's a very different divide than the typical left-right divide that we talk about in the United States. So that is kind of the outline of of things in the U.S. for a while. Ultimately, I think you still see an industrial revolution. Ultimately, I think you, you do still see, you know, many of the developments that we've seen in the modern United States. So what are race relations like in this alternate United States? Well, they're probably not better. There's going to be a real sense on the part of of a lot of people that you know the war was fought for these people who are different. It was fought for you know African Americans, and that that was not worth going to war for, and not lose, worth losing the South for. That's going to be one attitude, and people who who have that attitude, I think, are going to be less attracted to the radical party, which is initially going to be shaped by abolitionists. So that's going to be initially again, you're you're going to see some immigrant groups, some of the groups that were more traditionally hostile to African-Americans in northern cities. You're going to see a push for immigration, and so I would say you'll see a, a reasonably high number of folks from the U.S. emigrating to Liberia. This is much to the dismay of Frederick Douglass, who in this scenario ends up becoming connected with the radical party and tries to argue against this, but, you know, he is particularly unsuccessful, as there, there's an increasing push that free blacks in the North should go to Liberia, and Liberia becomes something that is sort of an, a territory more integrally connected to the United States. That being said, I do think over time what you're going to see is that given the way things are going in the CSA, attitudes are going to change. And because there is a smaller, in this scenario, African American population in the North, the attitude is going to change from initial hostility to a sense of Superiority in the way race is handled in the north to the south, a sense of superiority to the absolute dysfunctional mess that is south of the border, and to a sense that you know we we are doing a better job of this, we can ha- really handle the situation because they don't have slavery and so on and so forth, and also to a sense that you know this is not a group that that's really a threat, and I think you know th- there some of the tensions that come about in inner cities, for example, in the United States in the 20th century come about because there is competition for jobs. As you see African-Americans moving into places like Harlem, New York, where there's also immigrant groups, Irish groups in particular, you know, there's there's some tension that arises as a result of that. That's probably not happening in this scenario because you're not likely to see that same flow of people from the south to north because now it's across a border. So as a result of that, there is sort of a natural symp- sympathy and a natural softening of attitudes that happens over time because there's really no reason for it not to happen and because what is happening in the South is such an absolute mess that there, there really is a sense that you know this is, this is really just the fault of an intransigent, foolish leadership of a country that we are better off without that cannot handle its own business and cannot handle its own problems And so it's going to be less, you know, blaming the freed slaves for existing, which would essentially be the the initial attitude, unfortunately, and more really just blaming the social system. And the social system in the Confederacy is going to be seen as backwards, dysfunctional, and really as the problem. And so I think that you're, you're going to see gradually over time, those racial attitudes will start to change but with a recognition that also you're you're losing many of the values, many of the positives that the United States has gained from a a large, robust African-American culture in the United States. That value, that richness is going to be gone because you're going to have a much smaller population. So that's the United States. Now, what is the Confederacy like? Well, the answer is the Confederacy is going to be an absolute hot mess but it's going to be a different absolute hot mess than most people predict. (laughs) So to understand what I suspect the Confederacy ends up looking like, you have to know something about pro-slavery ideology. Pro-slavery ideology had a couple of common characteristics. Number one, it's anti-capitalist. That's the first and most important thing that you have to understand about pretty much everybody who's writing pro-slavery works at this time. They see the enemy as capitalism. There's a great quote from Benjamin Wade, who's an abolitionist senator from Ohio, and he says, every steamboat is an abolitionist. That is not a statement with which there would have been much disagreement from the Confederates. There is this notion that people have, and you see it in books like Ben Winters' Underground Airways, I've seen it in other examples of alternate history as well, that somehow you can have a form of industrial slavery, that you can turn the agricultural slavery that existed in the south into something that's industrialized. That is just a fundamental misunderstanding of the ideology that is behind slavery in the south. This is seen as something that is both an aristocratic and an agricultural way of life. Those people aren't going to just up and start factories because factories are seen as the dirty grubby things that merchants do and not the things that you know members of the aristocratic class are engaged in. So uh, no, you're not going to see industrial slavery in the South, because that defeats the purpose. The purpose is their anti-industrialization, their anti-capitalist. This is not a capitalist system. It is an aristocracy. It is an idealized portrait of agrarian life. It is a form of—it is much closer to socialism. And if you read John Calhoun, if you read George Fitzhugh, if you read you know people that are writing in this milieu, they recognize— that many of the things that they advocate for are similar to socialism. The difference is they, they uh, you know, would argue that socialism has this ridiculous idea that people are equal, right? So they, they would say, yeah, we believe like Marx from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. They just also believe that there is no equality to be found in human beings. So imagine socialism without any sense that people are equal, with a sense that some are naturally superior and others are naturally inferior. That's basically the ideology that you have in pro-slavery ideology. It is completely toxic to the type of system that you have that develops in the United States, which holds the opposite, which holds number one, the, the view of capitalism, that economics is fundamentally based on an exchange where somebody does thing X and you pay them amount Y, right? The labor, the labor theory of, of and contractual theory of business. And second of all, based on the idea of equality right? It's right there in the Declaration of Independence. It is implicit in all of the Bill of Rights. It is explicit in the thought of the founders. Whether they could live up to it or not, it's part of the ideal, right? Pro-slavery ideology is different. It rejects that ideal. If you read Cannibals All by George Fitzhugh, which is his, his explication of his, the, the ideology that he sees behind slavery, and Fitzhugh, by the way, is the most consistent. He's not necessarily representative of where a lot of people wanted to go. He's just the most honest, He's just the most honest about what you have to believe and how you have to get there to justify the kind of system he wants to justify. Everybody else is trying to pretend that you can harmonize slavery, that you can harmonize the system that they have with the principles of men like John Locke. And Fitzhugh's like, no, you you can't. Locke is the enemy, right? Eventually, the Confederates are all going to get there because there's no other way they can maintain the social system that they want to maintain if they don't adopt wholesale the ideology of somebody like George Fitzhugh and that is the and that is the underpinning of understanding of how confederate society would have worked if they won the war because the first thing that you have to do is you have to prevent any manumission and you know Fitzhugh is pretty uh, pretty adamant about this you know he goes so far as to say that everybody would be better off if slavery was more widespread he wanted to enslave poor whites as well I don't think that's probably going to happen even in, you know, the most fevered nightmare dream of the Confederacy, but the fact is that you certainly can't have many mission as legal, you certainly can't have a class of people that is free, right? So that has to go if the Confederacy is going to, to again, preserve its, its system. So you're seeing, at the same time as you're seeing many African Americans in the North out migrating, migrating to Liberia, you're also seeing a secondary migration of Anybody who is a what was called at the time a free person of color from the CSA is basically told you need to leave the country by X date. Now, the Confederacy initially, of course, says the is about states' rights. Well, that was gone by 1862 because when governors told Jefferson Davis that they didn't want to give troops for the conflict basically the confederate government's response is suck it up buttercup so as soon as you had a conflict between the interests of the confederate nation and the interests of the states the interests of the states got the old heave ho jefferson davis did pretty much all of the same things that lincoln did during the war just nobody talks about them because the confederates lost and then we let them romanticize their past right jefferson davis instituted conscription jefferson davis you know suspended writ of habeas corpus jefferson davis and his government harassed unionists Jefferson Davis and his government office and often, or or state governments deputized by the Confederacy, often massacred Unionists in Confederate states. You know, a particular target of this were the Texas Germans, who were Unionists in Texas. So, you know, this is not, by any means, a government that is somehow defending liberty against the tyrant Lincoln. People who claim that don't know history, because the Confederates are doing the exact same thing. We just let people forget about it, because nobody actually studies the history of the confederacy unfortunately and if they do oftentimes it's through ridiculously rose colored glasses but they're doing all the same things and they're going to continue to do all of the same things after the war because the reality is you cannot have a system that maintains slavery that maintains this type of economic arrangement while at the same time allowing people high levels of personal liberty it just doesn't work you can't have that idea of individual liberty As consistent with a system that doesn't allow basic individual liberty in terms of life, liberty, and property. It it doesn't work. And so, what do you need? You need a much more large scale, coercive apparatus of the state and also of society. And so, you're going to be looking at a society that's very regulated, very controlled, where the state is making sure that nobody departs from the pattern of relationships that defines the quote-unquote way of life that is going to be preserved. In other words, you're going to have a very powerful government that is very intrusive into people's lives. You're going to have a government that is basically mandating certain social relations and enforcing them at the barrel of a gun. And you're also going to have a country whose economy is completely dependent on a couple of cash crops, and particularly on exporting those cash crops to the people who just basically bail them out of the war which are the British, the people who sort of recognized your independence and made your independence possible. There's a price that comes with that. And the price is that you're providing cotton to Britain, period. End of discussion, right? That's your market. You're you're now essentially an economic client an economic dependency of the British empire. Congratulations. Welcome to independence. Now, Britain kind of gets the worst of both worlds here because on the one hand, you had a lot of people in Britain who are opposed to the Confederacy because they're Abolitionist, basically. On the other hand, you now have made an enemy of the United States, which is now expanding its navy and now is a threat, which it might not have been before. You have this country that you are dependent on, or that is dependent on you, the Confederacy, that is trying to preserve an institution that many of your own people find repugnant. You've created a much more difficult situation in terms of defending Canada because the United States is going to want to grab that at the first opportunity. And in fact, I suspect that what you ultimately see in this scenario is the United States basically like, forget the Confederacy, we want Canada. We don't want to deal with the Confederates' problems. You know, they've gone independent. They've messed things up. We don't want to have to fix it. You know, think about the relationship between North and South Korea right right now. Nobody in South Korea actually, I mean, there's a lot of talk about reunification. The South Koreans are certainly acting as though they're not really interested in paying for that. You know, and it is it is a very stark difference. That is the level of difference you could be seeing in the Confederacy, right? Keep in mind, these people broke away in part because they were opposed to industrialization. They want to preserve an agrarian society. They want to preserve an way, a way of life that depends on cash crop agriculture. So what happens in the inevitable scenario where you have the, the boll weevil crisis in the South, where you have cotton crops that are just being eaten away? And there's no George Washington Carver here who can teach people about the peanut, right? Because you don't live in a country where he's a free man in the Confederacy. So how are they going to fix that problem? Basically, you're going to start growing whatever crops the British tell you to grow because you are an agriculturally based economic dependency with a institution that is defining your country that pretty much everybody in the world hates. So it's a, it's a banana republic. It's a, it's a mess. It is a complete, absolute mess what ends up happening over time? Eventually, I think what you see is is some sort of at least nominal abolition of slavery. It is so unpopular, it's so toxic, and you're so dependent on Britain at this point that at some point there has to be at least a notional abolition. You know, that these people are not formally slaves, it's, there's some sort of indentured system, you know, it's, it's slavery by another name. You have to at least make it look good for the British. I think that you will see fairly regular rebellion from poor whites because they're not really gaining much from the system. They're sort of locked out of it. They're they're resenting their sort of economic subjugation, or you know, not just subjugation, but the economic poverty of the country that they're in. I would say you probably see continued agitation for secession in East Tennessee, a secession and rejoining the Union whether that's eventually successful or not depends on whether there's another war between the United States and the Confederacy to, at, at some point. I would say also this is a society that is is going to see power concentrated in the hands of people from a certain class and power changing hands within a narrow band of of sort of families. And people who are sort of having a veneer of, you know, civilization and sophistication while well, The country is is sort of on the verge of burning again uh, burning around them you know there's a couple of different ways things could go you could see something like a communist revolution from you know or or a a class-based revolution in a scenario like this maybe coming from african-americans maybe coming from that poor white group you know the, the sort of white people in the south who are considered not elite enough to to really be part of the power structure but who had to be you know and and were systematically separated from the African American poor by policy policy that's going to be reinforced and strengthened here so you, so you're basically giving people in that position no opportunity for advancement but the only thing that they're giving is a sense of they're given is a sense of superiority over another group superiority and scraps from the table right that's that's the system well people might not put up with that forever so at some point there's going to be some kind of populist movement that says this system's got to go, got to have some sort of industrialization. But here's the deal. People advocating for that, people advocating for good for good jobs for the working poor are not going to, to want slaves in their factories, right? This was the whole reason why you had the free labor movement and the free soil movement is because people don't want to be outcompeted by people you don't have to pay. So there's going to be a law passed that you can't have slaves working in factories or you can't have essentially you know let's just say that it's it's changed to indentured folk or you know indentured people or you know I don't know serfs or they changed the name somehow but whoever those people are you can't have them working in factories factory jobs have to be reserved for you know poor whites so you're going to have a multi-tiered system right you're going to have elites at the top you're going to have people working in factories, and those jobs are going to be reserved for people primarily who are white, but poor, right? And there's going to be a lot of unionization, and there's going to be a lot of populism there, but really it's it's defending a, a class slash racial interest. And then you're going to have African Americans who are still bound in some sort of indenture, who are still tightly subs, uh, subscribed, you know, subscribed in, in their life, but they're receiving some sort of you know, benefit some sort of you know, guaranteed income of, of some kind because you can't have them working in factories. The agricultural system is completely crashed. Probably by now it's industrialized. We don't know what to do with them. So we're, they're bound in this status, but they're given some sort of basic living standard. That system's not sustainable. It, it's probably ultimately what gets created in this scenario, but it's not going to be sustainable in the long run. And so ultimately, what do you have? You're going to have something like South Africa, where there's a push to end this system, end this segregated system. And it's not going to just be an internal push. It's also going to be an external push. Eventually, the United States is tired of dealing with a failed state on its neighbor, and it says you need to fix your problems, probably under a radical administration or an administration that is descended from that party. The British are also tired of dealing with the Confederacy and its issues. They are not interested in continuously, essentially subsidizing a system that is not going to work. And so the argument is going to be given to the Confederates. Get your stuff together, you know. Fix these issues. Get rid of this segregation system. Open up your economy. You know. Create a, a genuinely open economy. Essentially, destroy your social system. Or we're going to turn off the spigot. So pressures internally from you know alienated populations, social co- social unrest lack of social cohesion, you know, violence, things like that. The the kinds of things that you see in a failed state, the kinds of things that you see in a state that's that has institutionalized ethnic differences and ethnic conflict. If you don't see an outright civil war, if you don't see an outright insurgency motivated by socialism, communism, some sort of racial racial identity thing, who knows? I would be sh- I would be shocked. I'd be shocked if you don't in this society see something that looks like violent insurgency, violent warfare. And so it's a, it's a hot mess, it's a failed state, and eventually it, there's going to have to be a sort of rec, a process of you know truth and reconciliation, a process of desegregating, of opening up, and of trying to turn this country into a, a country that works. But it's going to be you know, a hugely messy process, because anytime you start talking about post-conflict like that, it's a mess. So is there any way that this ends well for the Confederacy? The answer is no. You have a system that will not work from the beginning. You have essentially a failed conception of society that cannot be sustained when you're competing with modern industrial capitalist societies. You have an ideal that is unrealizable. You have a, a fig leaf of liberty that would necessarily be stretched over something that would have to be almost totalitarian in the way that government is intrusive in people's lives. In short, everything that people who have championed the idea of the lost cause claim that they don't like, all the things they claim to be opposed to, the Confederacy would basically have to be and would have to do. You know, if you thought that Lincoln was bad, right? If you thought that Lincoln suspending the writ of habeas corpus and throwing people like John Merriman in jail for obviously, you know, spying for traitors, probably the actual Confederacy would be so much worse than that, that it's not even on the charts. There's no way that a society like that in the modern world works. It just, it, it, it's impossible. It's not a salvageable or achievable or in any way functional society or cause. It just, it just isn't. There is no happy scenario for the the Confederate States of America. There's no scenario where they sort of magically decide to abolish slavery five years later. There's no scenario where, you know, somehow they just turn into sort of a normal country and eventually reunite with the United States. It's a failed state. It's an absolute mess. You know, it's, it's, some of the less functional countries in latin america but way worse some of the less functional countries in you know parts of other other parts of the developing world but you know an even bigger mess it's something that eventually the united states may have may decide we've got to intervene right we've got to get involved because this is coming across our borders these problems are spilling across our borders they're now you know whatever insurgency is going on is attacking people in the United States, we need to intervene, we need to actually deal with this and try to come in and clean this mess up. And so ultimately, it's not better for anybody in the South, if the Confederacy wins a civil war, It's not better for African Americans, it's not better for poor whites, it's not even better for the people in the elite, because while they are tamed in, in that position of power, it, it, it's, it's better to be, you know, reasonably comfortable in the most powerful country in the world, than it is to be part of the ruling class of a failed state. That's just an empirical, inescapable fact. So, yeah, it, it is unequivocally, I think, if you look at it from a comparative perspective, if you look at it from a perspective of the actual history, the actual ideologies involved, if you examine things you know, clearly and soberly from the perspective of how have things like this worked out for similarly situated societies, it is an unequivocal good for everyone involved that the union wins the civil war. Nobody's better off nobody is better off if there's an independent confederacy and so you know i think we need to knock this romantic notion on its head before we close let me give you my idea for the dr nolte version of the show confederate so it is it is set in relatively modern let's say you know 1990s or something like that and so the concept would be that all the things that i said have happened you had you know slavery you had this almost totalitarian government that emerges into a situation where you have welfare combined with oppression because again remember these are people that are cool with socialism but don't believe in equality right so you have welfare combined with oppression for African Americans you have tightly uh, regulated but unionized you know working jobs for working white people for for poor whites you have an elite that is you know pretending to be sort of the civilized guardians of tradition and purity blah 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 while they're trying to run this hot mess And that kind of stumbles along through the the 20th century until eventually everybody gets tired of it and starts causing enough problems. There are enough insurgencies involved that the British and the Americans together after, you know, nearly a century of being divided or more than a century perhaps of being divided by this issue, decide, okay, this is enough. Enough is enough. Get your stuff together and, and fix this. And here are the things that you have to do that are mandated. And so let's say that you have a Confederate president who's like, yeah, okay, we need to we need to buckle down and we need to change these things, because if we don't, the country's not going to exist anymore. And so there's an attempt at openness. There's an attempt at bringing elements of of the rebel groups that are rebelling against the, the Confederate system into the system. And so as part of this, and here's where I think things you could actually do a show that would be interesting and not stupid, because most of the ideas that were involved in the show are stupid. For example, the idea that the Confederacy is going to become independent, which it's only going to do if outside countries back it. And somehow those outside countries are going to allow the existence of slavery for another 140 years, even though they've abolished it in the case of the British for 30 years already at this point. Yeah, that's not happening. So we're you're know, trying to do something here that, that is an interesting thought experiment. So what ends up happening in this scenario, of, You know, my, my idea for the show Confederate is you've got Somebody who is an African-American who is from one of these groups that wants to say, all right, let's work with the system. You know, we're we're going to try to see if we can get something that at least will make things better for the people that we are, are fighting for. And this person becomes, is, is appointed by the government to a cabinet post. And that cabinet post is secretary of state. Fine. You know, basically the idea being fine you wanted to see racial progress. We're going to put the person in charge of our foreign. We're going to take somebody who's, who's you know, from this group that you say we need help, and we're going to make them in charge of our foreign policy. So he has to deal with the Americans. He has to deal with the British. He has to deal with, you know, African-American rebels who think the compromise is insufficient and who, you know, are, are calling him a traitor and a sellout and trying to kill him. He also has to deal with various different white groups who see it as a betrayal of the nation that you have this person who is an african-american or i guess you would say afro-confederate in this situation who is now in in this position of determining and setting the policy of the course of our great nation that was based on the superiority of the white man blah 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 right so this is a really interesting scenario because you've got this person who is in a very interesting position has a challenging relationship with everybody around him you know, is probably someone who is a little bit political, right? This is not going to be somebody who is a white hat. You don't get to that level in the type of rebel group, insurgent group, all that kind of stuff without doing some some dirty deeds, without playing some politics, and without making some, some compromises that are unsavory in a system like this. And so you've got that person who is trying to navigate all these confusing, conflicting cross-currents. So it's a little bit house of cards. It's a little bit... You know, you could, you could think of some other science fiction and alternate history type series that might apply. You might actually be able to have some interesting characters that way, rather than whatever stereotypical stock characters the showrunners that were creating Game of Thrones were going to do. And given what they did with some things in the end of Game of Thrones, I have no confidence they would actually come up with good characters that would have had an interesting story. So yeah, I think that's, I think the story about someone who is a black man who is the secretary of state of the confederacy that is like kind of trying to fix his issues but maybe is pretending not to and is, you know is pretending to fix his issues and it's really not and and who's trying to navigate all this stuff that's actually an interesting story because it's complicated it reflects the way things are a hot mess and reflects how okay this is a hot mess this country is a hot mess how are we gonna try to you know work our way through it how do I feel about this how do we react yeah there's a lot you could do with a story like that But it's probably too complicated there's probably too much explanation that goes into it for people to really find that an interesting you know people might find it compelling but they wouldn't understand what's going on there's so much backstory that would go into it that you'd have to do so much world building and who's got time for that on tv right which is a shame because i think there's there's some interesting things you could do with a story like that but you know maybe that's not what we need maybe all we need to know really about the confederacy is that it was a bad idea a bad idea that that fortunately has been relegated to the dustbin of history and maybe there really isn't that much that we need to know or that we need to study about this idea except for the fact that i think one of the problems that i have with the way that we talk about it and the way we think about it the way that we have a tendency to decide that anything that we don't like is confeder- is the confederacy right so you know the 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 um modern capitalist system is a reflection of exactly what the confederates would have built right it's ridiculous if you look at the history and part of the problem is that it, rather than trying to understand history we have decided to try to weaponize it we've tried to we've decided to put it in the service of current political agendas and current political power the problem is history is messy it doesn't fit neatly into the categories of today it's not something that you can just sort of take a little bit from here a little bit from there and craft it into something that fits conveniently for you you can't do that without doing violence to what actually happened and to what people actually thought and so what the problem there, there's two problems with the historiography of the confederacy because people have either romanticized it or treated it as sort of a, a bogeyman straw man that you can apply to whatever thing you don't like and so people don't understand the ideology people don't understand the framework of this the society that it envisions and you know maybe there are some aspects of that that are similar to our own, that we need to learn from and, and, and avoid. But maybe there are also aspects of our society that are so radically different that, in fact, they, they killed aspects of that vision, that vision of a society that was so defined by and shaped by slavery. And probably the fact that those things are dead is a good thing. And so maybe actually learning about and, and studying the history of this is important. Not necessarily to resurrect it as something that's is a, a tragedy that it's gone. Not necessarily to resurrect it and say, this is a cudgel that we can beat people with politically now, but at a minimum so that we can actually understand the terrible road <laughs> that people wanted to go down and why it's so important to remember that flawed though men like Lincoln and Grant and others may have been, flawed though many aspects of the, the Union may have been in in some ways. And you know by today's standards and some some people that fought for the Union, probably even by the standards of the time, as messed up as things were. The evil that we were saved from, the, the, that everyone was saved from, not least the South was saved from, was so much worse. And it's not just a dark mirror of us. Like we can't look at it and say, oh gosh, this is just a slightly worse version of the United States. No, it's it's something that is completely, completely beyond what most people can conceive of or, or, or comprehend because we do live in a society in which that didn't come about. And there's no way, there's no way that that society is better, that the Confederacy somehow is better, is a viable, functional, working society in the 21st century. So that's going to be a wrap for this second, and turned out to be very long, Civil War Counterfactual. So the third one that I want to talk about is Reconstruction. And this is the probably the most controversial and, and the one where I would say it's least clear-cut what the alternative pathways look like. And it's least clear-cut, I would say also, that we necessarily got the best outcome Although there are other outcomes that you can clearly envision with that one where it would have been much worse. So we'll break that down in, in the next episode. We'll break down you know, are there ways in which Reconstruction could have been done better in a way that, was, that had more lasting benefit to everyone involved, but particularly for African Americans in the South? But we're also going to look at the fact that things could have actually gone a lot worse. And so we'll, we will examine all of those different aspects. So thank you once again for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Follow us on Facebook. And more international stuff coming soon. So that should be pretty fun and exciting. I probably am also overdue for some just punditry about the election. But we'll see how that goes. Things keep happening at a rapid rate. So it might be that we are in fact not in a position for punditry anytime soon. So we'll just kind of play it by ear. And uh, whatever happens in the past, the present, the future, the craziness, we will be here to analyze it at Blind Politics. And so with that, this is Dr. Ulti for Blind Politics, signing off.